For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us a spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Good morning, church. Thanks, Ruben. Open your Bibles, please, to John chapter 14. When was the last time that you were either alone or in a room full of people when someone dear to you made an announcement that literally just sucked the air out of the room? An announcement about suicide of a family member. An announcement about an inoperable tumor. An announcement about someone coming out as gay. An announcement of a marriage that was ending in divorce. Well, having served in this position of preaching minister for a few decades, I have heard all of the above and several more. I got to tell you, one that leaves me weak in the knees and is not going to sound near as ominous as any of those black holes I've just mentioned is when someone meaningful to our church says, we're moving. Jesus suggested, and often our staff has um, obeyed him, that we should pray for reapers to come join us for the harvest. Because here in Kerrville, Texas, we believe we're going to need some help in getting out this amazing news that Jesus is the Christ and that he matters in a human being's life. And so, we've been faithful to ask him. And you know what? He sent them to us. (laughs) But when he sends them, we like to keep them. Amen? I could rename our church Hotel California Church of Christ. You can check in, but you never check out. So I have to admit, I'm not so thrilled when um, someone who's been here and involved and given and served lets us know that they're leaving. Even if I feel like God and believe that God is going to use them somewhere else powerfully. And that's how I felt whenever the Giles, Jeff and Debbie told us that they were leaving. Aren't you glad I'm not bringing up a name here that is leaving? (laughs) That was a tough one for me. It really was. And even when they were trying to go on to explain how how they were leaving and the prayer that went into the decision and they would be closer to their kids and they they found a great place to build a house, I I got to tell you, I didn't hear any of that after I heard we're moving. Because they lost me at goodbye. Something dulled the synapses in my brain. (laughs) So that when the audio signals arrived there, that the Giles were moving, whatever else came after that, I only heard kind of like Charlie Brown's teacher. Wah, 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 wah. Have you ever experienced that? When someone deeply that you love, someone deeply you were connected to, maybe they weren't family, but, but maybe they were an employee or a teacher or an assistant coach, somebody who came along and who got you. You and your quirks and, and all that went with that, and you had a relationship with them. And they were responsible and they were respectful and they were resourceful. They were irreplaceable to you, either on your team or your business or your church. And then they announced that they were leaving. It just sucks the air out of the room when that happens to me. Never has gotten easier. Now, I say all of that because if you know that feeling, that's what you need to bring to this section of John chapter 14. 
The disciples have just heard those words from Jesus. He's just said, I'm leaving. And they're at the stage in these words we're about to read of hearing wah, 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 wah. And I know John writes them down in his gospel, but he writes them down years after the event, years later, when the Holy Spirit has nudged him and prompted him about what those words were. But I can guarantee you, he didn't hear a thing Jesus said after goodbye. He remembers the pit in his stomach, though. When Jesus' announcement was made, when he said, the time is coming for me to have to go away, and where I'm going, sorry, but you guys can't come. Now, that was a center for them because these guys were all in. They'd left family, they'd left jobs, they'd left their 401ks and plans for the future, and they have been walking with this rabbi every single day for three and a half years. Not to leave and go home, I mean everywhere he went. If he went to a different village, they went with him. If he, if he went to see a certain uh, group of people, he went with them. If he, if he taught, he was with them. If he was doing miracles, they were just with him. 24-7. Where I'm going, you can't come. John doesn't remember the words that came after that, but he does remember the flush in his face because of when those words were delivered. It was right after the disciples had been in a smackdown about who was the greatest. And instead of pointing the finger at them, he gets down and he, he gets a basin of water and he washes their feet. And then shortly after that, he announces in the room in a meal that just similar to what Jeremiah led us through, one of you in this room is going to betray me. How about that for an evening? That's what's going on. When Jesus announces, I'm leaving, and you can't go with me, John had to have been thinking, well, I guess his patience worn out. I guess he's finally had enough. I mean, after that kind of an evening, wouldn't you think that? Maybe he's leaving because he's mad. No, he's not leaving, John, because he's mad. He's leaving because he's about to go be made sin for you. You his best friend, you and Peter, the denier, you and Judas, the betrayer, and you in this room, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you. He's not leaving because he's mad. He's leaving because he's about to go be made sin. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21 says. John's going to find out later that Jesus is not leaving because of divine anger, but he is leaving because of a divine agenda. A plan determined in heaven even before the world was ever created. And you know what? They're not getting it. <laughs> wah, 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 wah is all they're hearing. And the looks on their faces convey that they're confused and that they're unsure. And so here's what Jesus attempts to do. He tries to quiet their hearts with some words that preachers like me have stood in places like this to try to quiet your hearts when someone has gone away. See if you don't notice these words are funeral words. Are exit words. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. And if that were not so, would I have not told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back. And I will take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the place where I'm going. <laughs> I love old Thomas. Whenever he doesn't get it, he's quick to speak it. Lord, no, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said, Thomas, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you know my Father as well. <laughs> 
And from now on, you do know him because you've seen him. You've seen him. Church, bow with me in prayer. Father, one of our elders, Donnie, got to hear this week that his brother left. He's gone home to be with you. He may be hearing some words like these at a funeral soon for Ronnie. We remember him this morning. Ask you to comfort, be his peace, and give him uh, strength to navigate the next couple of days. Even though he's known this is coming, it's still tough because he loved Ronnie deeply. Father, we want to lift up also um, Notre Dame Catholic Church. You know the disciples that are there. You know the disciples that are here. We're just asking that you continue to unite all of a, all the disciples in Kerrville. Knit our hearts together so that we focus on you, the Christ, and not the things that we differ about how we try to reach out to the world for him. Please, Father, we, we come here, some of us today, with troubled hearts. We come here not being able to see very clearly that, and maybe even hearing what I've said so far is just kind of wah, 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 wah. We need to hear from you. Would you come and make your presence known and your word known? For we ask it humbly in Jesus' name and everyone said. Curious, how many of you here have been at a funeral where those words that I just shared have been spoken? Quite a few of you. Well, there's no casket here today with a body in it. And there's no urn here today with ashes in it. No photo montage. No brisket and potato salad afterwards. Sorry. But there are a couple of takeaways I want to give you to encourage your hearts from this section of John. And here they are. First, I think this is good news. God has a place for you. God has a place for you. Almost every culture throughout time has possessed some idea of an afterlife that follows death. Some have called it the happy hunting ground. Some have called it nirvana. Some refer to it as Valhalla. Some refer to it as Hades. But it's the idea that there has to be some kind of life after this place that we know as earth. And I want you to know this morning, or at least be reminded of it, that that's really the rule among human beings on the globe. That somehow in our spirit we know there's got to be something more. The Jewish king Solomon wrote these words because he had a sense that the afterlife was, was put there by a specific person, and that was God. In Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 11 the scripture says, God planted eternity in the hearts of all men. That's why it's so global. C.S. Lewis would argue the case that if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world seem to satisfy, the only logical explanation is I was made for another world. Well, we believe that. And I'm standing here and many of you are sitting there because we believe C.S. Lewis and, and Solomon were absolutely on the money that there's more. There has to be more based not only on the scriptures there but on the promises God has made us that there's a new Eden coming, a new heaven and a new earth. Let me take you back to Genesis because Genesis informs us that God began to form a world and a people because he wanted us to live in a great relationship with him. Which is what made the first Eden so great. Eden's greatness had less to do with the climate and the incredible scenery as much as it did one thing. And that was God 
was there, right there. I'm not talking about far away, not invisible, not had to be seen by faith. But Eden was Eden because God was right there. As a matter of fact, Genesis says they walked and talked with God just like some of you walked and talked during prayer time with some of your brothers and sisters. Go figure. That was Eden. And in our text, Jesus never uses the word heaven. But interestingly, he does refer to a place. A place that's more than imagination, a place that's more than metaphor. No, it's a very, very real place like you've been to and I've been to. It's not in the clouds as often Hollywood depicts it. It's not some incessant fog bank where everybody has wings. No, this place is real. It is actual. It is tangible as any place you can experience here. And greater than its amazing scenery and its climate is one thing. It is a place where you, listen to me, belong. A place where you matter and you know it. All the time. Now you may have experienced a hint of that here. Occasionally. But it's not often. That most of us live very long in that place. Where we know. We matter. And we belong. And that's where Jesus has taken us. So let me ask this question. Do you have such a place right now? Is that how you, how you feel this morning? Is that what you're experiencing right where you are in your life right now? That you belong. Sometimes all we seem to know day after day is the places where we don't belong. Or maybe where these words are attached to it. Sorry, there's no room for you here. You've heard it in places of employment that have sought you out or at least you've sought out. And then comes the email, sorry, we don't have room for you on our staff. You've heard it when someone that you thought loved you hands you some papers that look official and say, sorry, I don't have room for you in my heart anymore. You've heard it from schools you sought admission to, teams you sought to a place on, friendships you sought to become a part of, that, that phrase, sorry, but there's no room for you here. Some of you have heard it from bigots. Sorry, we don't have room for your type here. Some of you have heard it from churches possibly. Sorry, we don't have room for that kind of mistake or failure here. Some of the most difficult words any human being hears is, sorry, we don't have room for you. And they're tough to hear even when there's no animosity attached to them. It's still hard to hear. We're about to fill the position of office admin for Danell. But there's one position, one and we've talked to six women, four of which have some connection to this church family, several intimately. But there's still not a pew, last time I noticed, behind Danelle's desk. Just place for one. And so five people are going to hear, sorry, you're not the one selected. And that's going to sting, and it's going to hurt for those who receive it. And I promise you, even for the team, the hiring team, that has to send it. No, malice doesn't have to be attached to the words, there's no room for you here, in order for them to hurt. The innkeeper wasn't being mean-spirited when he said, I'm sorry, Joseph, there's no room in this inn. 
There wasn't another place to give him. When David selected king, there's almost an entire baseball team of brothers who weren't selected. And they each got to hear from Samuel, sorry, you're not the one to sit on the throne. Now, what does hurt more than any other is when malice is attached to the words, there's no room for you here. Jesus experienced it when the residents of his own hometown tried to stone him, put him absolutely to death, because they wanted to make it very clear, we have no room for your kind of ministry here in Nazareth. When the religious leaders refused to acknowledge that Jesus was a man sent by God, they did so even after he had opened the eyes of a blind man, even after he had raised a man who was dead, Lazarus, from the grave. Because they want to make it clear, in their religion, there was no room for this guy to be their Messiah. And when humanity put him on a cross, it was from ordinary folks just like you seated here in this auditorium today, who made it clear our sin, our way, has no room for you as Savior. And it hurt. It hurt the Son of God to hear that and experience that. And it continues to hurt because Jesus continues to receive the same treatment when he walks through life, knocking on different people's hearts at different times and saying, could you and I get together? And the door remains shut because the answer is no. For most of humanity, Scripture says in Matthew chapter 7, most of humanity, the broad, wide, mostly dominated by those who say, no, that's not a path I choose. It's not a door I want to open. Sorry, there's no room in this inn for that. And I would hate it if that's where Jesus' ministry ended. <laughs> no, just what I thought. They're just a bunch of mess-ups. No, it's just what we, we, we concluded in the heavens. No, here on earth, having experienced it as a human being. No, it's true. Done. Wiping my hands. Finished. And John was thinking when Jesus walks out saying, I'm leaving, he's thinking that's what he's thinking. But the good news is for every single one of us who's thrown open wide that door, who said yes to his invitation and invited him in, Jesus says, I know, I know this world can be discouraging. I know sometimes even I can be disappointing to you. But Jesus still says this, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust in me because there's a place for you in God's house, ample room for everyone. And so that's the first takeaway I hope that you take with you. There's a place for you. Now, I don't know how you feel about that, but what a deal. We make room for him in our lives. He makes room in a house forever with him. You say, well, Jimmy, where is that? What does it look like? I don't know for sure. Scripture says specifically this, no eye has seen and no ear has heard and no mind can even conceive what God has prepared for those who love him. All I know for sure is you don't want to miss out on that place because it's there you will experience that you belong and that you matter like no place here. That's good news to me. Now to prepare a place like that, Interesting. To pull off preparing a place like that, Jesus says to his disciples specifically then, I got to leave. 
And that always makes a person's heart skip a beat when someone we deeply love says, I'm sorry, but I got to go now. I love my dad deeply, but he broke my heart on a regular basis because he repeatedly said those words, I got to go. God only gave him a certain amount of tools in his toolbox to be able to make a living for our family. And that entailed him leaving for five days a week, most weeks, 45 in a year, to go do sales in a certain territory that we lived in for him. Because he was preparing a way to pay our bills and to put clothes on our backs and food on the table and have vehicles for us to drive and a roof over our head. He was preparing a way to do that. But it was gut-wrenching. Every week that I saw him packing his little brown Samsonite suitcase and getting ready to leave for the next five days. In part for the hell our home would endure without him there. But also for the threat that might keep him from coming back. A disaster on the road. I mean, he traveled so many miles in that silver van of his. A better deal at some other address than our address. Other dads had opted out for that. They'd found them another address to call home. What if it would happen to my dad while he was gone? But he would always assure me, I'll be home before you know it. And you know what? He made good on that promise. Because he always came back. And I share that story because that's what Jesus is trying to say to his disciples. I have to go away. And i got to go prepare a place for you. But there are many rooms in my father's house. Never doubt that there's not a place for you. But i got to go prepare that place. Now he uses the word house there because it's something that we can connect with. It's personal to us. It speaks of belonging. It speaks of a place where I, I should know that I matter. But he's not talking about, listen to me church, square footage. When he goes to prepare a place, he's not talking about some awesome acreage with a jacuzzi tub and a great view. Sorry. I don't mean to pop anybody's bubbles. He's not chipping Joanna Gaines up there, tricking out a new apartment for you. All right? And, and, and that's kind of what we've thought and we've taught. I've got a mansion just over a hilltop. Love the song. Theology is a little sketchy. Unless it's about a place where I belong. Unless it's about a place where I matter, not necessarily acreage and square footage and a jacuzzi tub and a great view. You won't care about any of that other stuff when you're with him. You won't. See, you've never been with someone like him before. <laughs> Everyone in this room you can get weary of, please take a vacation, go on. Jimmy's going to be gone this week, great. We need to hear from somebody else for a change, all right? Uh, you mean so-and-so? Anybody can get old, all right? Not with Jesus. Can you imagine? To be with him, I don't care where we are, what it looks like as long as he's there. That's what the disciples got to experience. Have you ever noticed that in Genesis, Adam and Eve never talked about their great casa? Never. They did talk about the great place they lived in with God. They talked about walking and talking with this God. And what Jesus is going to go and prepare for you is a home for your heart, a home for you. And the disciples needed to hear this in the face of what they're about to experience because I'm telling you, all hell's about to break loose in the next 24 hours. An arrest, 
a night trial, a death sentence, and a humiliating execution. And Jesus knew they needed to hear before it all began to unfold that this was not some cosmic accident, that this didn't just catch Jesus off guard, but this was part of God's cosmic reunion, a rescue plan to get us home to a place where we, I'm going to say it again, belong. Belong. Well, Jimmy, how can I be sure Jesus has the credentials to pull that off? Great question. I know I wrote it, but it's still a great question. Here's his resume. I know it's kind of thick, but you need to read it. Seriously. Turn off the phone. Turn off your computer. Shut down the video games. And spend some time in his resume there. Looking at the things he he did. Looking at the things he said. Looking at the promises made. He changed history and he can change yours he really can and so he invites us to get to know him God has a place for you but God has the person to get you there and that's Jesus Christ I will move any appointment on my calendar any day of the week and meet you if you can find me a better savior hear me clearly I don't care what I'm doing you find a Savior with better credentials than Jesus Christ, I will meet you anytime, any day, anywhere, because I want to hear about him. Buddha is not the way. Muhammad is not the way. You are not the way. Not you and your moral choices and your good works. They're filthy rags, the Scripture says, compared to what it takes to belong with God forever. Jesus said this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Now, that plays well in here. Not so well out there. And for some of you who are in here, it doesn't play for you well either. Because to be honest, that is flat out offensive to our culture. Come on, Jimmy, really? In this modern age? How bigoted are you? How narrow-minded are you that you can think Jesus really is the only way? You mean to tell me you actually believe unless a person turns his life over to just him, then we have no hope of a home in heaven? Yeah. Well, why can't we just live and let live? Why can't we just be content to offer Christianity as one of the selections on the golden corral of world religions? Why do we have to claim that being a Christ follower is the one religion approved by God? One reason, and one reason only. Because Jesus said there's no other way. And we follow him. That's the only reason. Christians in the first century who actually heard this Jesus preach and teach did not want a statue of Jesus in the house of God's called the Pantheon. It's where all the gods of Rome were, were, were gathered together and you could just walk through kind of like a museum and see all the different gods. They didn't want Jesus to be among them because they refused to confess him as one among many gods. They quoted the Apostle Paul often though who said, Indeed, there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one. One God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord. And his name is Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. 
And the church then and the church now said, that's what we believe. One of my favorite zealot writers, Tony Campolo, tells about a conversation he had on an airplane years ago. It was in his book, It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. He wrote, it was a 1 a.m. red eye from California to Philadelphia, and I was planning to sleep on the flight. But the fellow next to me had other ideas. He wanted to talk. He asked, what do you do? <laughs> Tommy, t- Tony wrote, when I want to talk, I say, I'm a sociologist. And they usually say, well, that's interesting, and here we go. But tonight I wanted to sleep. I really wanted to shut him up, and so I, I said, I'm a Baptist evangelist. Because that usually shuts people up. He said, I'm a Baptist evangelist. But the guy said, do you know what I believe? (laughs) Tony said, I could hardly wait. I believe that going to heaven is like going to Philadelphia. Again, Tony says, I certainly hope not. He said, there are many ways to get to Philadelphia. Some go by airplane, some go by bus, some drive by automobile. It doesn't make any difference how we go, just that we all end up at the same place. Profound, Tony said. And then he went to sleep. Yet when I woke up, Tony writes, the wind was howling and the rain was beating on the plane and everybody looked nervous and they looked tight. And as we were circling in the fog, I turned to the theological expert on my right and I said, I'm certainly glad the pilot doesn't agree with your theology. He says, what do you mean? He said, well, at this moment, the people in the control tower are giving instructions to the pilot, very specific instructions to the pilot. Come in north by northwest, three degrees, you're on beam. You're on beam, don't deviate from the beam. He said, I'm glad the pilot's not saying, there are many ways into the airport. There are many approaches that we could land on. He said, I'm glad he's saying there is only one way I can land this plane, and I'm going to stay with it. I love that. Friend, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And his followers say, we believe him. Not because we think Christianity promotes healthier families. Not because we think it generates a more ethical life. Not because we think it will bring about world peace. No, sir. We make this bold affirmation about Jesus because we believe he opened the door to the Father by offering himself on a cross. And he was killed there, but he didn't stay dead. Three days later, God raised that man out of a tomb, and all of it was predicted before it ever happened. And we just believe here at this church That anybody who can pull pull that off needs to be followed. And there's not been anybody else like him who's done that. And so we're in. We're in. And church, our eternity hinges on a relationship with that man, that God-man. It hinges on our trust in him. It hinges on our willingness to follow him into the same mission he came here for. And that was to go find lost people. To let them know there's a bridge, there's a way home. And I hope you're in for that too. All of this reminds me of um, George Tulloch finding the Titanic. Probably didn't remind you of that, but I'm going to tell you about it. In 1996, he led an expedition to the spot where the Titanic sank in 1912. 
He and his crew recovered numerous artifacts, everything from eyeglasses to jewelry to dishware. But in his search, Tulik realized there was a large piece of the hull that had broken off from the ship and was resting not far from the vessel. So Tulik immediately saw an opportunity at, at hand, and he, he thought, here's my chance to rescue a part of the ship itself. And so the team set out to raise the 20-ton 20 piece, 20 piece of iron and place it on a boat. And they were successful. They got it to the surface, but a storm blew in and the ropes broke, and then the Atlantic reclaimed the treasure. So Tillich was forced to retreat and regroup, but before he left, he did something rather curious. He descended back into the deep, and with the robotic arm of his submarine, he attached a strip of metal to a section of the hull. And on the metal, he had written these words, I will come back. George Tillich. Now, that sounds amazing at first, but first it kind of threw me. I thought, well, what's he got to worry about anybody coming to find that piece of junk two and a half miles down in an ocean? It's just junk. Really? Who in the world would claim it as treasure? And then I thought the truth could be, same, could, could said, could be said the same for you and me. Why in the world would God go to such efforts to reclaim us? What good are we to him? Rebellious, ungrateful, self-centered, touchy, easily offended. Him. What good are we to him? And history says 2,000 years ago, he launched himself into some murky waters of our world to say, because you matter. Lost kids matter. Even though an iceberg of sin had put an irreparable hole in our hull and our ships had sunk, I mean had gone down, and all the angels in heaven had said, that's where they'll stay. They just couldn't fathom the love of God being that great. And to all who will allow him to do so, Jesus says, if you'll allow me to claim you and put my name on you, listen to me clearly, I'm coming back for you. My dad kept his promise. He came back every time. The Giles have kept their promise to come back a time or two. George Tullock kept his promise. He came back two years later and he rescued that pile of iron. But the best news is this morning, Jesus will keep his promise, friend. He's coming back. We don't know when. We're not quite certain how. And we really don't understand why he would. But mostly we just have faith in this one who's prepared a place for us, that he's the person and has the credentials to get us there. And to that, we say as a church family, please come, Lord Jesus. I hope he's your savior. If he's not, you can be before you leave this place. You can put your trust in him. You just start believing today. And, and we'll take you back here. And we'll put an end to the sins in your life, to the regrets in your life, in the watery grave of baptism. See you raised to walk in a brand new life, covered in his name. Yeah, you'll still have your name, but you'll be, you'll be covered in his name. We're going to sing this incredible anthem. That he is all to us. If he's not your all, then you want him to be. 
we can, we can fix that. Come find me or one of the elders. And if you walked in here this morning, and I'm telling you, your hearts are troubled. And you thought a few moments ago, I, I, I need to go find one of those elders, and I, I just didn't. Now's a great time to do that. As we're going to sing as an anthem that this Jesus is all this, I hope it just nudges you to make sure he's being all to you. Let's stand and let's praise him, church.